Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up This is the Church Politics Podcast Where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview We're not trying to be conservative or progressive We're trying to be Christian in the public square and I'm black as heaven I'm made in God's image Nobody can change my settings Amen. Hey man, cut off my knees And put an end to my search It's easy to sell your soul When you don't know what it's worth What you know good, Ann Camp You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast With Justin Gibney A.K.A. Bishop Cooper's grandson And the Windy City representative The baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line My play cousin The right reverend Christopher Butler. Chris, I want to start this off on a serious note and really just to test how much you know about me. Do you know where I'm from? What city I'm from? I do know what city you're from. Where is that? You're from Denver. I'm from Denver. There was a athletic competition (laughs) earlier this week between the Denver Nuggets and another team and my team, the Denver Nuggets, who I've been talking about this whole year and really knew that they would be at this point. (laughs) They won that competition. Again, we don't like to cover sports too much, but I think it's appropriate even for a a, a show that's about the gospel. Because the truth is, right, and at the end of the day, the gospel was about truth, is about salvation. The truth is, Denver won that game handily. Uh, Let them back in, let it play with them a little bit, but took them out. And I just want everybody, as we start this show off with the truth, to, to recognize that truth. Recognize that your little team, the little L team from Los Angeles might be in trouble. So just wanted to start off with that. I think it's important that we recognize those truths and keep them close. Were, were you all were you able to watch that game, Chris? You know, I, I watched the beginning of it. I was surprised to see the final score, but I, I kind of I had a lot of work to do. So I, I, I tuned it out. It seemed like it was well in hand and it, it, it ended up, you know. It ended up where where it started. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you when you whoop up on somebody and you kind of get bored and they come <laughs> back, you know, that that little stuff happens. But I thought I thought they made their point. Thought they played a really good game. So I'm looking forward to them winning this series. Shout out to the Denver Nuggets. And let me also say this because I was in my 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 home city last right. week. I want to give a shout out to the Colorado Prayer Luncheon because I was able to go to that prayer luncheon. Got to meet the mayor. Got to meet the governor. And really, shout out to the Ann Campaign's chapter in Denver. Really had a great time being home. Brought my sons. They got to go to my old high school, the state champion, Cherry Creek Bruins. We had a good time. And so it was good to get back, good to see everybody, and very welcoming to be at that prayer luncheon and all the folks that I met there. So the other thing that I put out there, Chris, is obviously, if you have not read the Invisible Institution newsletter that came out a couple weeks ago, you need to go check that out. We talked about an article last week that Chris wrote there. I wrote an article. John Richards wrote an article. This newsletter, especially if you're a faith leader or a pastor, is all about equipping you to be prepared in the public square. So keep an eye out for that. Go sign up for that newsletter. Also, y'all know what it is. As we always say, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. And also those who are our patrons on patreon.com slash church politics. We need y'all. This podcast has become fairly well known around the country only because of word of mouth, but it's time to kind of get past some of that stuff. We got to do a little bit more marketing to get to as many Christians as possible. So keep telling your friends and folks at church by all means, but we need you to give so we can do much more on this platform means a lot to us. And also Check us out or or send the video from YouTube to one of your friends or something like that, too. Most of you are used to watching it or listening to it on, you know, either Spotify or iTunes. And that's cool. 
But if you look at our YouTube, we need to get those numbers up because people would think we only got about 200 listeners if you, if you looked at YouTube. So make sure you're getting over there. Send that out, even if that's not the way that you want to watch it. And we would greatly appreciate it. So as always, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. And let's start off with some scripture. Proverbs 14 verses 15 through 16 says this. The gullible believe anything they're told. The prudent sift and weigh every word. The wise watch their steps and avoid evil. Fools are headstrong and reckless. Here, gullible means simple-minded, easily persuaded, or those who lack faultfulness in choosing their opinions or making decisions. Chris, I know you saw it, but I recently tweeted about how we often assume that the more educated people are, the more critically they would think about issues and that people who are less formally educated might not be might not think as critically as as those who are formally educated. We would assume that folks who are educated would use or apply the broad base of what they've learned to the issues of the day as they form opinions, that the amount of scrutiny they would have when it comes to especially serious issues would be higher. And you may disagree, Chris, but I found that that's not true. I found that to be kind of an elitist conception. I found that you can be formally educated and very simple minded on one subject or another. The elite or professional class of which I belong to some extent don't necessarily think more deeply or more critically about all issues, especially social issues. I don't think we can make that assumption. For one, Exposure to more information doesn't necessarily translate into more wisdom. And we've talked about that before, Chris. And the other thing that I would say, too, is that there are different types of intelligence. I've learned through the years that just because somebody is is smart when it comes to engineering or law doesn't mean that they're smart when it comes to money. Right. We all know people to add to that who are book smart, but don't have a lot of common sense or who have a lot of degrees but have hardly any mother wit, right? And to be frank, in this day and age, Chris, I'm not sure how much some degrees even reflect a wealth of valuable knowledge. I'm just trying to keep it real. Here's the other thing. The degree to which we're tied to an ideological tribe and are stubborn and prideful, or as the Bible says, headstrong and reckless in holding to to certain narratives also makes us extremely gullible. In other words, The more I want all progressive or conservative narratives to be true, the more gullible I'll likely become to make that so. And I think that all people of all education levels are subject to that. We're extremely gullible when it comes to what we want to hear or what our tribe presents us as this esoteric knowledge or knowledge that only a special group of people can understand. And so when we're wanting to understand that esoteric knowledge, We often just become gullible to things that don't even make sense. We go into certain spaces and part of fitting in is acquiring the sensibilities and the point of view of this custodians of that space, of the gatekeepers, whether it be executive professionals or activists and academic leaders. We want to gain their approval. To disagree with them, even if you're right on the merits, restricts your access into that group. And that's certainly true. Once again, when it comes to social issues. In short, our desire to be considered elite 
can render us extremely gullible despite the education that should have raised our level of scrutiny, but doesn't always do that. We start following and believing what certain influencers say smart people are supposed to believe or should believe. So, Chris, as somebody who wants to be smart, I may believe what I'm told smart people should believe without actually thinking critically through the issue myself. We outsource that work to other people, even when their conclusions are in conflict with the word of God. Again, to disagree with these influencers on issues like abortion or transgenderism is simply not to get it. And inside these groups, not to get it is the worst thing that could happen, right? It's much easier to just go along and parrot the talking points. It's much easier just to post your pronouns and use words like Latinx, whether it makes sense or not, because when in Rome, right? Now, this isn't to say that higher education is bad. I have higher education. I think it's good. But highly degreed people are not less prone to uncritically accepting bad ideas or false narratives if there's a clear consensus among the tribe that they want to get receive validation or legitimacy from, right? The general posture in this sort of group is that everything associated with traditionalism is wrong, so it's pretty safe to do the opposite or believe the opposite of what that group of ignorant people who think the unborn have dignity and think biological men shouldn't play women's sports. It's safe to assume that you should go in the opposite direction to oppose the things that they believe are true because they can be closed minded, because they can be anti intellectual and because they are bigoted. But here's my point. I think that narrative is flat and can mislead us just like anti intellectualism can do. Chris, do you see where I'm coming from on what we can call the equality of gullibility? I really do. I actually was was pricked intellectually when I saw your tweet on Twitter. I'm still trying to grow up and, and be better about tweeting. Uh, but I, I, I thought about it a lot because uh, I've been thinking about this and, and even having a few conversations about it. I feel like we might be dealing with something a little bit more structured and I think a little bit more dangerous than just gullibility. Because I, I think we're dealing with continually an, a, an outcome of the ideological capture that you're finding more and more in both formal academic spaces within the university systems, but also informal academic spaces that are kind of like the social and, and cultural professional environments that are populated by and controlled by university graduates. It, it's almost as if the goal of education itself has been sort of reoriented. Uh, and to a certain extent, we're outsourcing some of that thinking, like you said. But I'm finding more and more that people have sort of internalized this approach to thinking that, that I think is very faulty, but I, but, but I do think is structured. And I'll I'll read this excerpt from a a critical theorist, Alison Bailey. She's a professor of philosophy at Illinois State University in my home state. And she articulates in a formal way, in a paper, the aim of this kind of reorientation. So she says that critical thinking is concerned primarily with epistemic adequacy. To be critical is to show good judgment and recognizing when arguments are faulty, assertions like evidence, truth claims appeal to unreliable sources, or concepts are sloppily crafted and applied. But then she says in critical theory, 
on the other hand, the critical learner or critical thinker is someone who is empowered and motivated to seek justice and emancipation. Critical pedagogy regards claims not as propositions to be assessed for their truth value, but as expressions of power that function to reinscribe and perpetuate social inequalities. Its mission is identifying and mapping how power shapes our understandings of the world, end quote. So what, what she's saying is that in today's society, the educated, the learned, the enlightened person is not actually the person of strong logic and sound reasoning, but rather the person who is skilled at deploying claims and ideas and statements like pieces on a chessboard just to jockey for the most dominant position of power. And so that really distorts things. And, and, and I'm, I'm not saying that this approach and this sort of orientation of learning is being forwardly and expressly and literally taught in every university or even in most universities, but I do think that this kind of new approach to critical thinking is being modeled in a lot of, in a lot of academic institutions, modeled and, and reinforced in a lot of elite spaces in the media. And so I do think it started a place of gullibility and, and just that kind of like social pressure to conform. But I think that more and more people are really internalizing this approach so that I'm, I'm, I'm just finding that more people are able to arrive at a considered agreement with complete nonsense, even applying their own analysis because their own approach to analysis has been restructured in a way that what we think about as critical thinking is not even a legitimate sort of intellectual exercise. It's, mm. it's, it's a completely different exercise. And I think that's much more dangerous for the discourse. Wow, that's heavy. And I think I've read that before, but I hadn't looked at it through this lens. Let me just say this, and I've said this before. Critical thinking is not the enemy of Christianity. The, the word can stand up to your critique. Critical thinking has always been the enemy of brainless tribalism. The last thing you can do, whether it's the progressive tribe or the conservative cr- tribe, is question people internally. That's like, how dare you question us when they're so bad out there? And so it's interesting to see somebody in a sort of intellectual manner try to justify not critiquing certain things that we're going to hold to be true, whether they're true or not, right? It's just interesting for us to see. And the reason that I started thinking about this, and I'll be honest, is actually going to go in my next book, which will be, it'll be a little more detailed, is I was having a conversation with an attorney friend of mine, a group of attorneys who, who you know, he's a pretty smart dude. And we started talking about transgenderism and we just started going back and forth. I just wanted to know what he what he thought. Right. It wasn't it wasn't real contentious, but it was very clear that he knew the talking points. But once we got beneath the talking points, he didn't know anything outside of that. And it was interesting to me because it was implied that people who didn't agree with him and he was a little further on the left on this issue were stupid. Like, how do you not understand that gender is on a spectrum and all this other stuff? Like, it's obvious. And I'm, you know, and you say, well, is it obvious? Like, how do you know? Why should that be obvious to everybody? And once you got past that talking point, even with this person who's been an attorney and does an excellent job in his field and who's, who is uh, well-read and things of that nature, there was nothing there after the talking points. And so, I, and so what I'm kind of getting to is that on issues of abortion, on issues of transgenderism, and there's a number of other issues, but those stick out to me. The people who are supposed to be the smart people in the society, in many instances, have not really thought very deeply about that. They've just taken the talking points of what those folks are supposed to believe. And when we believe 
just what smart people or intellectual people or elite people are supposed to believe as Christians, we run into trouble. There's nothing in the Bible that says that's safe for you. What I can guarantee you is if you start to test people to go past the talking points, you will find whether they're an executive, whether they're the partner, you will find that oftentimes they haven't gone that far. I mean, let's be honest. Most people don't sit in deep thought. Like that's kind of what me and Chris do. But most people don't sit in deep thought about a lot of these issues. We take shortcuts or we trust other people who we think are credible to kind of give us what you know we should be thinking. Christians have to be very careful with that. And so I'm not saying that you should trust uneducated people more. No, I'm saying that you shouldn't assume based on somebody's education level or how intelligent they may be in some field that they've thought about other issues deeply because you often find that they have not. Go ahead, Chris. I think that that's a, a, a great point because what you're almost doing is is exchanging that credential for a form of goodness or piety, especially if you listen to how Bailey argues for this new approach to critical thinking. Those arguments quickly go to the kind of labeling and name calling, right? Like it's bad because it's racist. It's bad because it's sexist. And that's the end of the analysis because it's not about you know, kind of like proving out an argument step by step based on some kind of logical formulation is simply about how does this power map, how does this map onto society and a power framework? And so if it's racist, then it's bad. Even if it feels logical, we can reject it because it's racist. And so you're kind of endowing that credential group with the level of of goodness and piety that really ought to belong to the Lord. And so it's really bad, I think, for Christians to do that. I think we have to understand we should be careful of that, calling it racist or sexist or any other kind of, you know, label is is not sufficient, right? Like we, we really have to analyze it through the lens of the scriptures. Otherwise, the standard of righteousness has now become what the the tastemakers are saying yeah. versus what the Lord is saying. Yeah. And, and the truth is our discourse can't work like that. And I think that's one of the problems with cancel culture within our discourse. You don't just get, get to have a set of elites, whether they be in academia, whether they be in the, prof- you know, somewhere else in the professional class that come to a conclusion and just put it on everybody else. Yeah. And that's what hap- has happened with a lot of these issues, namely transgenderism. You have a group of people that have come to a conclusion. And, and I, don't, I don't necessarily think they've come to it from a malicious place. They may be well-meaning, but they've come to a conclusion that hasn't gone through the discourse. And we don't have an oligarchy. So even sincerity needs to have proof, right? Yeah. Since even sincerity is subject to proof. So even if you really are doing this for the right reason in a democracy, you got to prove it. You got to persuade people. And that's what folks in this space don't often want to do once they come to a conclusion. And that's undemocratic. And I would say for us, it's unfaithful for us just to go along with that without running it through biblical scrutiny, which is not something that you're going to be taught at a, at a at a secular institution or any of that stuff, right? We need to be able to do that at all times and not trust well-educated or less educated people just based on their credentials that we should be following them, especially when it comes to values and these very serious moral issues. Yeah, I think that is a very, very important thing to wrestle with. It's something that, like I said, I've been thinking a lot about it because the more that I'm realizing, and just to put it in context, like I'm, I'm talking to folks who are coming out of college and coming out of, you know, sort of graduate schools right now in their like early and mid twenties. And this 
orientation toward critical analysis is just very different. And so if you're listening, like go like give a dollar on Patreon and like send some questions and some thoughts on this. Cause I'm, I think with, with, with this population of folks or this group of folks that I'm engaging with is not quite enough to just tell them to think about it critically because what they have learned to be critical analysis is just different from what we would call critical analysis. And it would lead them to the same nonsense conclusions 99.9% of the time, but it is what they call critical analysis. Yeah. I found that it's just very dismissive. Like, yeah, of course, the people that don't believe this are stupid, but I can't explain why I believe it. Right. If you can't explain why you believe it, then you can't call somebody who disagrees with you stupid. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, unless the demand for an explanation is in, is in and of itself bad and evil. Right, and exactly. Like the, the whiteness of philosophy and all that type of stuff. And this is the necessity of cancel culture when you want to put forth forth ideas in this way you have to have cancel culture so that you don't even really have to enter into the discourse about it right that you can just say no this is the way that it is because i said so and this is my identity or whatever the reason that you have and that's the end of the conversation guess what that's not how democracy works our public discourse cannot move forward that way and that's an unfaithful way because it doesn't respect what other people may have to say or it doesn't necessarily respect what the word might have to say about these issues. And we really need to think over that. Anything else, Chris? Yeah, I, w- I was just going to say it, it also, to me, is anti-intellectual to approach things in that way. But that's not what the intellectual is being taught in our time. And so I feel like that argument increasingly is being taken away from me. That is anti-intellectual. It feels like my approach is anti-intellectual. And it's, and it's laced with that morality, which is what I, I really want to caution people toward because it's, it's not just because it's my idea it's because your idea is going to hurt somebody therefore the conversation is over once i said it's going to hurt somebody it's over it's yeah. over so i'm protecting the vulnerable and you're attacking the vulnerable and so because of that you're bad i'm good and i'm not going to deal with you because you're so evil and and that's such a great point just remember that the enemy can use our ignorance against us But he can also use the assumption that we're not ignorant, that we're elite, and that we know more than we really know against us, too. Just something to think about. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction, the And Campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility. This is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. The 
and we are back on the church politics podcast just had a conversation about the equality of gullibility but i want to get into something different which has something to do with ignorance in a way but let's talk about it chris ralph edward cruz aka senator ted cruz had the audacity had the nerve had the unmitigated gall to try to call out the Biden administration over immigration. Now, I say this admitting and being very clear on the fact that the Biden administration or Biden himself, I think, and you may, I'm not speaking for you, this is me, sold the American people a bill of goods during the campaign about what they would do or what they could do when it came to immigration and when it came to what was going to happen on the border. In many cases, they've done the same thing that Trump did. Mm-hmm. I think that issue was used in a way sometimes to get people to think that they were, they could be more compassionate and they were going to do all these things and they, they just couldn't do it or if they even planned to do it, who knows? So I do think that's a fair critique for somebody to give. I'm not saying that the Biden administration is without blame for what's going on on uh, at our border. I think even during the campaign, they made some crucial mistakes and they're limited in what, in what they can, can, can accomplish. But the reason they're limited in what they can accomplish is part partially because of Ted Cruz. I'll be honest with you, Chris, it is hard to accept any criticism coming from Ted Cruz of all people when it comes to immigration. In part, he built his name and his brand on roasting Republicans like Marco Rubio, who were working with the Gang of Eight, I think it was, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a bipartisan group. So working with Democrats to find a comprehensive solution to our immigration problem. He cut his teeth. He made his way and got a name off blasting Republicans who were trying to get something done on that issue, making it to where it was completely untenable to to where you you could not even be seen really talking seriously with Democrats to try to get something done. And it created a whole environment on the Republican side of the aisle where nobody was willing to do that because they didn't want to lose their job. They didn't want to lose a primary because they were actually trying to get something done and that that he could call amnesty or that they could call all these names. And they just figured, look, it's not worth it. We're not going to do anything on the subject. Cruz led the charge to ensure that we never got immigration reform. And now he wants to blame someone else. He wants to jump up and say, oh, look at what the administration is doing when you've done everything in your power to tie the hands of pretty much every administration since you started talking about this. I just can't accept. I, I can't sit here and accept. I ain't forgot. I know there's a short memory sometimes when it comes to politics. I have not forgot what Ted Cruz did, the environment that he helped create. I will not sit here and listen to him talk about what somebody else isn't doing when it comes to immigration. I will have my critique of the Biden administration. There's a very fair critique of that. I can listen to that critique from somebody like Marco Rubio or other Republicans that actually tried to get something done or tried to work with others. Senator Cruz, you don't have the credibility to really speak on this or criticize anybody else in that regard until you change some of the attitudes and really the tone that you created. But go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I wish we had all the, the you know bells and whistles because I, like you, can't forget you know, what the, the Rubio Schumer amnesty plan, right? Like that was Ted Cruz's lead line that he used to to blow up that moment. And when you really think about this immigration issue, that gang of eight moment was as close as we've ever gotten to a real comprehensive solution 
on immigration reform, which is something that we absolutely need. Never mind the fact that Ted Cruz himself had actually spoken in favor of the basic framework that the Gang of Eight was pursuing in committee before he decided to run for president. He'd actually spoken in favor of that approach. So it was already, it was it was sort of a, a dishonest move for him to pick that up and, and take it as his sort of crusade in, in his own name making or whatever. But he blew up that moment. And like you said, I, I don't think it's fair to go back and, and now just step forward and try to criticize. You know, I'll quote Bryant Wright, who's a, the former president of Southern Baptist Convention. And he said that too many conservatives, conservative evangelical Christians are allowing their views on immigration to be shaped more by talk radio and politics than by the scriptures. A lot of that has to do with folks like Ted Cruz. You know, I think people in both of the major parties, people all over the country know that we need reform and it's just impossible to do in Congress because working with the other side on this issue is a non-starter for anybody who wants to move forward in a particular political party. Sitting where I sit right now in the city of Chicago, but we literally have migrants sleeping on the floors in police stations. Lawsuits been filed against the city because, you know, they want to use a shuttered school to house immigrants and the black people in that neighborhood have been trying to get a hold of it. I mean, it's, just, it's so much consternation and chaos all throughout the country uh, based on this issue. We need a real solution. And people like Senator Ted Cruz need to own their role in preventing a bipartisan solution and try to repair some of that damage if they're going to step into any conversation over the issue. Because right now, as far as I'm concerned, you just have too many people who are made in the image of God, U.S. citizens and, and immigrants alike. Too many people are hurting. Too many of our institutions and resources are being unnecessarily strained because we haven't found a solution to this issue in the decades that we've had to discuss it. Yeah, and let me remind you of something else. You know, when we think about the polarization in politics, nowadays we kind of point to Trump and folks like that. Let me be very clear. Before Trump even stepped on the political scene, Ted Cruz was doing everything that he could to divide the parties, to divide the nation based on his rhetoric. That started before Trump got there. And Ted Cruz was right in the middle of it. And one of my biggest issues with Ted Cruz is that he's always been opportunistic. He's always seemed to put the advancement of his career before real people. Now, politicians in general can do that. But when you want to talk about extremes, I don't know a worse extreme than Ted Cruz, who will do anything in the moment to try to get to the president. I don't think he ever gets to the presidency. And I'm not I'm not sorry to be to be able to say that because he's but he has compromised himself over and over again. He's hurt this country over and over again, hurt the discourse over and over again to, to get what he wanted, to appeal to the worst voices and the worst feelings and worst motives of his side. Not once have I seen him stand up and say, that's not right. Let's not go that far. No, he, he takes it as far as he can get it, as, as far as he can take it, and as far as it will be to his benefit. He's continually done that. And I just want to remind people, not in the defense of Donald Trump, but just for the history's sake, Ted Cruz was doing that before Trump. Yeah. I mean, it's real. You were almost looking to see where Trump, you know, kind of took a page out of Ted Cruz's playbook because I, I think Ted Cruz doesn't get to the presidency because Ted Cruz does not have the 
uh, sort of like raw political talent to get away with being that opportunistic and saying things and going to the extreme without regard for what he has said and done previous to that point, right? Like this whole thing of like the Rubio Schumer amnesty plan. Well, you were in support of that plan <laughs> before, or at least the general frameworks of that plan before you were running for president. And you thought you could use it to get to the base. Yeah, you know, it, I, I think it takes a certain amount of political skill to be able to do that. I can think of other presidential candidates who have great political skill and have done that to some extent, but I'm not going to get into <laughs> what about isms right now. We'll just focus on Ted Cruz, but he lacks the talent to be able to do it well, at least well enough to get to the presidency and to just cause people to forget about or disregard things that you've said or done in the past. But I, I do think that. Ted Cruz and others who destroyed that Gang of Eight moment have a share of responsibility to either try to repair the damage or at least to just be quiet right. and, yeah. and and don't try to enter. Do some positive work first, and then maybe you can step in and criticize somebody else. The other problem that, that's been with him, and I think this is what you're getting at, is his opportunism is so thinly veiled. Yeah. Right. Like he he can't even like some people have the skill to cover theirs up a little bit more. He just does not have that skill. But even without that, I think he's he's taken it to places and had such a negative impact on our discourse yeah. that he can say anything that he wants to say. It's going to be hard for me to honor anything that he has to say, especially on that issue, based on what he's done. And, and until he repairs it again, yeah. we don't think anybody's irredeemable, but he's he's dug himself a hole. He's hurt a lot of people. I mean, people are suffering in part because of his decisions and where he helped move the Republican Party on this issue. No doubt. And <sighs> it's hurting the country every day in greater and greater fashion. So it's disappointing. That's facts. We will be back on the Church Politics Podcast. Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend Christopher Butler. So this next one we had to add on just because the story kept getting so much bigger. And this is the Dunham Report. The Dunham Report. The Durham. Dunham. Isn't Dunham. There's some name. Some show I watch is Dunham. Anyway, guys. The Durham Report. The Durham Report was released a few days ago. And it's not good for the FBI, in my opinion, Chris. The report is based on an investigation led by special counsel John Durham. Durham was commissioned by the attorney general, Bill Barr, that was attorney general under Donald Trump, to reexamine how government agents investigated the link between Trump and Russia in the 2016 presidential race. So this comes out. It's a 300 page document. I got it to at least read the executive summary. But here's what Jake Tapper, CNN's Jake Tapper had to say about it. since folks, you know, you might not take my word for it. Here's what Jake Tapper said. He said, regardless, the report is here. It has dropped and it might not have produced everything of what some Republicans hope for. It is regardless devastating to the FBI and to a degree it exonerates Donald Trump. That's what Jake Tapper said. Now, as you could guess, Tapper was attacked by the progressive communications group, Media Matters and others. Basically, Chris, for saying something that could in any way help the right or help Trump in particular. Regardless if it was true or not, you're not supposed to say that. You're not supposed to say that it exonerates Trump. 
you're not supposed to say that it is bad for the FBI when the FBI is today, at least in the good graces of uh, many progressives. Now, what I want you to keep in mind about this whole investigation, Chris, is that at one point, most Democrats treated it as fact that Trump colluded with Russia in significant ways to compromise the 2016 presidential election. Am I I wrong about that, Chris? Most Democrats that you talked to talked about it as it was a fact. In fact, I mean, I would bring that into present tense. I mean, there's still a lot. And the candidate he was running against talked about it in that way from time to time. I want to be very clear, guys. Y'all knowing this is not a a pro-Trump show. I want to be very clear because we will be honest. I don't care who it's on. We're going to be honest on everybody. That was proven untrue. I want you to hear this. On several occasions now, that whole massive collusion to compromise the 2016 election between Trump and Russia has been proven untrue. Yes, I know we had congressional hearings about it on and on again. Yes, I know MSNBC talks about it every day for three years. It was untrue. Now, in the report, Durham criticizes the FBI for being politically biased in the investigation of the 2016 Trump campaign. Basically, this is one of the things he says. He said that the FBI used raw, unanalyzed, and uncooperated intelligence. It's my understanding, Chris, that some low-level FBI agents said that there was nothing there to investigate, but the higher-ups made them pursue it anyway. This steel dossier that we're using right now is not real. It has nothing in it, but the FBI not, you know, being biased and being political, said move forward with it anyway. The FBI even warned Clinton's team when foreign actors were trying to influence her campaign, but did not do the same for Trump. Durham said that they lacked objectivity and integrity, ignoring, listen to this, ignoring information that exonerated key suspects. So there's key suspects that could have been exonerated, but they chose to ignore the information. Do you know what that's called? It's called injustice. It's called partiality. It's called undemocratic. It's called unpatriotic. They couldn't cooperate or support a single allegation from the Steele dossier, yet they moved forward with it like it was a legitimate document and took so much time out of the public discourse to talk about something that they could have easily thrown in the trash. Now, whether you supported Clinton or whether you supported Trump, or some third party, this is not okay. And Christians need to be able to say, whether we like Trump or not, and we can all name all the issues that we have with them, that is not okay. That is not how our intelligence community should be acting. Y'all have to, and some of y'all owe some other folks an apology. Y'all have to get it through your heads. The whole collusion between Trump and Russia has been proven to be untrue, especially to the extent that many folks were talking about it. You might not like that, but if you want the other side to be honest when things that they're talking about aren't true, then maybe you should start doing it first. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. I mean, you've said, you know, a a lot of what has to be said here. This, for me, just hits squarely at one of these issues that I think is one of the top two or three that's facing our democracy, our kind of civic and political culture. And that's, that's the erosion of trust in our basic institutions. And I I think for that reason alone, there's got to be some kind of accountability here, right? You can't have a situation. I mean, the report literally says the FBI failed to uphold their mission of strict fealty to the law. And 
you can't have the the top law enforcement agency in the United States compromised in that way where people don't feel like that law enforcement organization is devoted in a faithful way to the enforcement of the law. That's a big problem. One of the the parts, and, and I didn't read the entire report, you know, looked at the executive summary and kind of flipped through the report, but this report brings to, to light a severe accusation, I think, that the president, then President Barack Obama, the vice president, who was at the time Joe Biden, and the attorney general who, at the time Loretta Lynch were all briefed on what the Doe report calls the, the Clinton intelligence plan, right, which we know now as the Steele dossier, but they were briefed on that. While they were president, vice president, and attorney general, briefed on an intelligence plan, a completely contrived document that was going to be circulated with the articulated intent of manipulating the outcome of a presidential election. That is a significant, significant thing. And you can't just look the other way. And and like, I'm no Obama hater. It's a picture of me and Barack Obama on the wall in my office. I don't hate Barack Obama in, in, to any extent. Even if you love Barack Obama, that should, that's just a, I mean, that, that's very eye-catching. And, and if that kind of thing has taken place, if the FBI wasted taxpayer funds and, and much more importantly, in my opinion at least, squandered the public trust, I, I'm calling it here a shaky accusation. But I mean, it, it's the, the report calls it completely uncooperated, right? Simply false. And, and they wasted public funds, squandered public trust millions yeah and talk about the hearing time we could have been talking about immigration or something else we're talking about this fake and really you know the the larger the longer run of this like if if you if you look at like how this whole discussion of russian interference in in our elections has skewed even kind of like the the american view of russia itself like and, and made russia like this this big bad nation that needs to be, you know, checked and contended with rather than the kind of nation on the back end of, of national greatness, more so than being at the height of it in terms of its, its strength, its power, its ability to to impact American elections and American politics, all that stuff. All of those dynamics are at play, even in our current politics, right? In our current political moment, when we think about the current war with the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, all that stuff is colored by this whole conversation. And what the, what this Doom report tells us is that it was all based on false pretenses and moved forward through the FBI because of political bias. And that's a massive problem because even if, if nobody technically broke technical laws, it erodes the public trust in a way that some kind of accountability, I think, has to come forward in order to try to begin to restore trust in our institutions. Yeah. And, and let me say this. If you're waiting for partisans on your side to admit that this is the truth before you believe it, shame on you. Let me tell you, give you a, a hint. They're never going to admit it. Your favorite person that you go to for confirmation bias on the left is never going to admit that this was a big deal. Now, what Democrats are saying is there wasn't enough to send anybody to jail as some Republicans wanted. Therefore, this doesn't matter. If you believe that, shame on you. Read it. You don't have to trust me and Chris. Read it for yourself. 
This is terrible, especially when it has to do with democracy. We're all, everybody's everybody so cares so much about democracy. Everybody's talking about saving democracy. This is part of the problem. You can't talk about saving democracy when you talk about Trump and January 6th, which was a huge, massive problem that we talked about on here and not care about this. And part of the problem with our public square is that Christians care too much about partisan and ideological narratives than they do about the truth. And until we can do different, then we can't expect anybody else, any of this stuff to change. Yeah, I think there needs to be some kind of accountability. And as as you said, this report has not resulted in a lot of criminal charges and laws the law. There may not be criminal charges, but not everything. And the report actually says is that not everything that is unjust and immoral is also illegal. But for the sake of that, that basic trust in our institutions, I think there needs to be some kind of accountability for some of the folks involved in this. Because we, we can't continue on on this road just where people don't have, you know, any kind of trust in, in the Supreme Court, in the Congress, in the presidency, in law enforcement agencies. When when people don't trust these basic institutions of our government, we have gotten into a really, really tough place for our democracy. And so I would just hope that for the sake of the literal democracy system of government and our current way of life, like everybody who is like bought into this idea that everything is racist. So we have to have like this radical reorganization of everything. Like number one, know that I see a lot of racism in a lot of different places. This is not to say there's no racism, but when you talk about like, you know, we're going to like blow up the whole system, blow up the whole government, everything. Be real careful about that because we don't know what comes in its place. We don't know that it's going to be better. And so I'm still a fan. Maybe I'm in the minority, but I'm still a fan of trying to restore, reform the, the the basic systems that we have. And so every time I see something like this, that deeply erodes the level of trust that the general population has in these basic systems of our government, just to know that when the FBI investigates somebody, that there's some there there. Not that we're going to ever remove all bias from politics and government. I'm not naive in that way. But this is brash and, and brazen and needs to be discussed and needs to have some accountability, I think, for the sake of that that kind of public trust. I agree, man. Well, that's it for this episode. You know what it is, Ann Kemp. There's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Kemp, well, I'll let you. Dear Lord.